Welcome to the Car Podcast. I'm Brett Smith, Director of Technology at the Center for Automotive Research. I'm joined today by Greg Brannon, the Director of Automotive Engineering at AAA. Greg has been with AAA for over 30 years. His first job with the organization was answering calls from members. Since then, he has worked in member relations, market research, business markets, strategy and plans, and most recently in the Automotive Engineering Group. Greg and AAA are longtime partners of CAR, and he's a good friend. So stay tuned. Greg, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brett. Great to be here and, uh, and chat with you. Hey, Greg, most of us are familiar with AAA's Roadside Assistance Program, but many are unfamiliar with the Automotive Engineering Group. Tell us about the type of work your group does. Well, our automotive engineering team uh, consists of uh, engineers on two coasts. And uh, uh, I think what people might be most surprised to learn is that uh, AAA at our core is an advocacy organization. We actually started back in 1902 uh, fighting for equal rights to these newfangled automobiles alongside uh, horse and buggies. And we have stayed true to those roots over the years. And, uh, and really invested in ensuring that our members and consumers in general are aware of and can get the most benefit out of different automotive technologies. So my team has the opportunity to research everything from the best type of fuel to put in your car to the latest autonomous technologies to electric vehicles and really everything in between. And we do all that on our own dime. And, uh, and really in an effort to support the, that mission of ensuring you know, safe mobility for, for everyone. And uh, it's, a, it's a great job, and I'm, I'm really happy to lead the team. So, Greg, I, I recall my years working with SEMA out in Diamond Bar. You used to have, a, I think, a garage out in Diamond Bar, if I recall. What facilities do you have? Where do you do your tests? Where's, where's the work done? Yeah, we, we actually uh, moved that facility into uh, downtown LA uh, some years ago, but we do, we have a, a full emissions lab there in, uh, in California, and um, we have availability uh, to utilize the Auto Club Speedway and uh, in the drag strip at Pomona and a few other things where we have naming rights. We also uh, operate the Gomentum Proving Grounds for autonomous vehicles up in the Bay Area. Um, and we have access to that facility. Um, my team of engineers here in Florida, uh, we have our own automotive technical center here. And, and so we do a little bit of everything from naturalistic testing on roads to closed course testing with partners. Um, like DRI and other experts in the industry, and uh, and utilize whatever it takes to uh, to get the job done. So we're we're well equipped to uh, look at a variety of different automotive technologies. Over the past decade, you and I have talked about the work AAA has done to include battery electric vehicles in your roadside assistance program. EVs and gasoline vehicles have many similar roadside incidents. For example, flat tires, crashes and damaged suspension, to which those of us in Michigan know a whole lot about. Um, But they have some very different kind of incidents. What is AAA and yourself, what have you learned about uh, assisting EV vehicles and roadside during the last decade? 
Well, it, it's it's really an interesting point on the electric vehicles, Brett. The uh, we, we've we've learned quite a lot, and in fact, in 2012, so I guess that's been 10 years ago now. We have uh, we started a pilot for mobile electric vehicle charging, and we tried several different uh, ways to accomplish that. And mostly, we learned two things. One is that R and D is very hard um, building uh, building something that's never been built before, um, and two. Uh, the need just simply wasn't there. We were we were ten years ahead of the market, and uh, and so we learned a lot through that. And uh, and more recently, we've deployed uh, mobile EV charging um, in in, a, in I think sixteen markets and growing uh, across the U.S. now as as just a a service that uh, that gets people comfortable that that AAA has your back regardless of what type of vehicle that you're driving. I think the important thing to remember, though, and what we're what we're starting to see uh, internationally from some of the some of our affiliates overseas that um, are much further deployed in uh, in electric vehicles. Um, Norway, for instance, eighty uh, percent of new cars sold, and I think approaching thirty percent of vehicles on road are battery electric. And we partner closely with those clubs as well as those in England and the Netherlands, and uh, to get an early look at what we can expect here on the roads in the U.S. and what it'll mean to AAA members in our business. And one of the the most interesting findings is that we seem to see that electric vehicles tend to break down about the same rate that regular internal combustion vehicles break down. So that's an interesting point to start. Some of that might be because it's new technology, but some of it is because they still have these pesky things that internal combustion vehicles do, like tires uh, and 12-volt batteries. And uh, and those those two categories, tires and 12-volt batteries, actually make up the bulk of the service that we provide for electric vehicles. And uh, tires, if you've ever driven an electric vehicle, you'll know that uh, that they're kind of hard on tires because they, they accelerate very quickly. Um, they are very heavy. And the combination of those two things is not friendly on, uh, on tires, regardless of how easy they are in the brake system. Uh, of the vehicle. And so you see more tire wear and, and uh, more tire issues. And as you mentioned, things like potholes, probably more susceptible to those type of things too, because they, the vehicles are very heavy, many of them well over 5,000 pounds uh, in their vehicle weight. And so the mix of things we provide for electric vehicles is, uh, is different, but, uh, but there's a lot of the same in there too. Yeah, so I want to go back to the different for a few minutes. We've talked in the past, Greg, I think, about um, EV runs out of electricity on the side of the road. How do you get that thing charged up? You can't just put a gallon of gas in it like you do for a, a quick top or a quick fill off um, gasoline vehicle. You have to charge it. Now, you folks, I think, started out with good old diesel generators on your on your, uh, on your vehicles to, to go out and charge them, which is kind of an odd thing of charging an EV with a diesel generator, but kind of a necessity back then. The alternative is just to put down a flatbed and tow it to a charging station. Out of those options, what do you find the customers are more um, comfortable with than, or, or more effective, is more effective? 
Well, again, the incidence is very low uh, of people actually running out of an electric of charge on their electric vehicle, say in the two to five percent range of all the electric vehicle, uh, all the electric vehicles that we service. And so it's not a it's not a service that is highly demanded, but people are very comfortable, very glad to know that that we do have the ability to charge an electric vehicle at the roadside. But as you said, Brett, it is not as simple or quick as dumping in a gallon of gas and sending you down the road. Um, and so it is situationally dependent. Um, if, if the customer is in a safe place and they just need 10 or 15 miles of charge to make it home or to their place of work, then we might send, we might deploy the, the mobile charging equipment. If they are in a different situation, like let's say they ran out of uh, charge while on the interstate or in a dangerous location, we are most definitely going to do the thing that is quickest, safest, and best for that customer, which in many cases, might be towing it to the nearest uh, charging facility or towing it home for for our members. So um, it it really it really depends on the the situation. But I think the most important thing to know is that uh, is that we have really taken this seriously and want to ensure that people know that we have their backs and and we we do just as we have since uh, 1902. So it's um, interesting when when I look at AAA. You folks have a remarkable connection to the end user, to the customer, in so many different ways. You're linked to millions of drivers and car owners. What have you learned about their interest in battery electric vehicles and the research you've done? Yeah, our consumers and our members are very interested in going electric. And uh, we've been surveying for some time about that interest. And, uh, and what we've seen is 20 to 25% of people are considering an EV for their next vehicle. Now, that's an astounding number. Um, but what's, how that's different, and, and we're, we're really interested to see how it changes over time, but that number's held pretty steady for the past several years. And I think the difference that we see now is that that 20% now has some viable options whenever they go into the, to the dealership, where in years past, mm, there were some compliance cars and things that were maybe not, uh, not exactly what a consumer was looking for outside of a you know, very specific consumer. Uh, consumer that's wanting, you know, really wanted to go electric and give up some of the functionality that they might see. Now we see things like pickup trucks with, you know, 300 mile range. We see uh, crossover utility vehicles, um, things that people actually want to drive. And so I think that that 20% intent is likely to uh, end up with uh, higher actually purchase behavior than we've seen in the past. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's coming. There's no question the future is electric. The pace at which, um, you know, I guess we're, that's anybody's guess at this point. But uh, yeah, we, I think we've hit that hockey stick moment, Brett. Exciting. So, so if we've hit the hockey stick moment, Greg, and I'm going to quote you on that going forward, um, <laughs> mass market or wider adoption means, does that mean anything different in the roadside assistance world? Greater adoption of EVs? It does. It means it means a lot, not only in the roadside assistance world, but also in the in the repair world as well. And uh, and so we've got to be ready for the the changing, uh, you know, or that shift um, for you know, make sure that we have the right services for 
consumers, and uh, and I believe we are we are ahead of that and and continue to be, but uh, we need to make sure that we we continue to follow it very closely. And as I mentioned, it's a good thing we can look into the future by looking at some of the partner clubs overseas to see what that looks like. And the, the good news is that that we believe we're, we're well positioned. Uh, in that space, um, in the in the repair side of the business, you know, AAA uh, approves repair shops. You know, some six thousand repair shops across the U.S. part of their approved auto repair program. The challenge for them is very different, uh, and the services that are required to service an EV very different. Um, and so, the, it's going to be a real shift for the independent repair shops to uh, to keep up with this change and build the the tools and skills and technologies that are necessary. And it's uh, it's going to be a major shift. Greg, your group has done some great work on testing automated driver assist systems, especially advanced emergency braking. I think I remember up at Traverse City at the car management briefing seminars, you opening your remarks, and in the background, you had some of that testing on the screen, which was kind of fascinating to watch. Can you describe the process you go through in testing AEB and um, what you learned from those tests and maybe some recommendations as a takeaway? Yeah, I, absolutely. We've got a we've got an awesome team, Brett, that uh, that is able to focus on these advanced driver assistance systems, and we've we've tested all of the systems that that underlie, uh, you know, the the current um, capabilities up to level two. So that's your autopilot, super cruise, all of that. Um, and all, for almost ten years now, we've been looking at these at these systems and, and kind of the building blocks towards that uh, higher levels of of automation. So that's automatic emergency braking, lane keeping assistance, adaptive cruise control, and everything in between. Um, l- last year, we revisited automatic emergency braking. It had been since 2016 since we had looked at that technology. And uh, knowing that, uh, or actually this year, I should say, and knowing that in September of this year, automatic emergency braking would become standard on uh, on all new vehicles, thanks to the voluntary agreement from automakers, we thought it was timely to revisit that technology and understand how it's uh, how it's progressed and where some of the capabilities come from. And so, whenever we take on a project like this, we our intent is not to rate or rank individual vehicle performance. We leave that to others like IIHS or Consumer Reports. Um, what what we'd like to do is look at the technology as a whole and uh, and see where the the benefits can come and where some of the limitations happen. And so, with a project like uh, like this, we start with data. Um, and so we look at crash statistics and we partner with our Foundation for Traffic Safety and dive into the details of where the system may offer the most help to drivers. And, uh, and what, we, what we learned in this case is that the, the current test standards for uh, automatic emergency braking really in the U.S. are focused on static tests, you know, and approaching a stopped vehicle at 12 and 25 miles an hour. And that's fine and may reduce some crashes and, and bent bumpers and things. Uh, I guess bumpers don't much bend anymore, um, but uh, <laughs> bent plastic, anyhow. Shatter or crease or, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. I've got some stuff that'll bend. That's for sure. But uh, yeah. So so what, what we've what we've found is that uh, is that the where the best benefit for consumers is uh, in terms of actual safety benefits it often happens in intersections. So scenarios like T bones. Uh, or unprotected left turns are some of the situations where drivers are most vulnerable and where fatalities are the highest. And so what we did in this test is, uh, is set out a few different scenarios um, that included both some stationary tests uh, as well. So we tested at 30 and 40 miles an hour. Not surprising, the systems were much less effective at 40 miles an hour than they were at 30. But I think then the surprising part is that they were completely ineffective in intersections. Um, so that, you know, in a scenario like a T-bone or that unprotected left turn, we did not receive a single notification or system activation at all. And so uh, that, so we use that that data not to pick on automakers, but to rather point out where improvements could be made, and then point those out not only to the automakers, but also to regulators and safety organizations that are setting standards. And so, what we want to see is that uh, these technologies are deployed, um, but they're deployed in the way that can offer the biggest benefit to drivers. So, Greg, you've described doing for 10 years this research and studying the uh, ADAS performance and ADAS systems. Let's talk about one of your recent efforts, commonizing of ADAS terminology. You're one of the leading voices within the industry in creating a standard terminology. And I think looking at your research a while ago, you found 20 unique names for adaptive cruise control and 19 for lane keeping assistance. How can consumers figure out what that means? How has your mission gone in, in finding a common ground for industry to, to land on some names that can, people can, can rely on? Yeah, the the uh, the journey with um, the naming conventions for advanced driver assistance systems, yeah, began several years ago when we started to notice the the wide variety of names that that automakers were using. For example, um, a, a German automaker um, describes their uh, adaptive cruise control system as Distronic Plus. Hmm. I saw that. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure what that means, um, and I'm I'm sure that consumers don't know what it means. Uh, And so we've been, we've been. But Greg, it sounds really cool. It does sound cool. I just don't know what it is. Um, Yeah, it's like computer technology. Yeah, it must be important. I got to pay a lot for that. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, we began this effort. Um, you know, some years ago now, I think it's, we're coming in on five years where we really did some research uh, to understand the breadth of the issue. We, we published that research along with some naming uh, suggestions, and then we, we were able to quickly bring a group of uh, industry folks together that included Consumer Reports and J.D. Power, National Safety Council, uh, Partners for Automated Vehicle Education, bring all of these groups together, and we utilized that format uh, or that forum to refine those terms and make those suggestions and then come together as a group and make the recommendations for the industry. 
And uh, and automakers are are interested, but we haven't seen a lot of adoption. And so we, we went then to the Department of Transportation and worked with them extensive or extensively to to gather input and feedback. And um, we got pretty far down the path with them. And they said, well, we need really need to bring SAE along here because if uh, if someone's going to standardize something, we should probably have a standards organization that does it. And so we embarked on a two year journey to uh, to bring SAE along with that. And uh, I had some great partners from automakers and all across the industry and a lot of great feedback. And so we finally got last year to the point where we were able to publish that uh, that list of recommended names with SAE's endorsement. And the terminology is now included in, a, uh, in the J standard. And so so that's great, but what we're ultimately looking for is adoption of these. And um, more recently, we have begun to work with some specific automakers on including the naming, uh, not necessarily replacing marketing naming like Super Cruise uh, or the like, but rather using it in the description. So, for example, if you're going to uh, call your automatic emergency braking system collision imminent braking support mechanism as the marketing name, let's say, then in brackets after that, we should say, we should describe what that system does by saying this is an automatic emergency braking system that does X, Y, and Z and works in scenarios A, B, C and includes pedestrian detection or doesn't include and all of these things. And so it is a baby step forward, but an important one. And we continue those conversations with DOT. Uh, I just had a call with the Government Accountability Office yesterday on this topic. There's a, there's a lot of interest uh, around it, and I think we're making some good progress. But uh, like everything, you have to uh, buckle down and realize it's going to be a minute. Um, nothing, these kind of changes don't happen fast, but, uh, but we do have the right people working on it, and we've got some good momentum. We just need to keep our foot to the floor. Yeah, I've noticed over the decades, it's always a balance in, in this industry and probably any industry between brand naming and generic naming and, and trying to find that common space where you can still differentiate, but use terminology or use um, descriptors that at least give the consumer some idea of what the heck you're talking about. That's right, Brett. And, you know, I, I think one of the best examples, one of the ones I always point to in this space is anti-lock brakes. Right. We don't see automakers at this point, you know, some 30 years into anti-lock brakes, we don't see them advertising that as uh, super braking pulsation assist technology. Right. We, they call it anti-lock brakes. Whenever you look at the minority label, it's called anti-lock brakes. And ultimately, you know, consumers are, can compare that vehicle to vehicle. They can understand what it is, although they may all work just slightly differently. They work close enough to the same that people can understand. And, uh, and, and that's where we'd like to get with these advanced driver assistance systems as well. It's just that there are so many of them and they're so new. We have a long way to go in that journey, but, uh, but we're, we're confident we can get there. They're, they're clearly still in the development stage and in the introduction stage. And, and as they do that, vehicle manufacturers, even suppliers want to find ways to differentiate and to make theirs the right thing or the unique thing. And, and that balance, uh, I hope it doesn't take 30 years like ABS, but yeah, it's, I think for consumers, even myself, as I've gone looking for a vehicle recently to, to try to figure out what the different phrasing is, what the different branding is and, and what it actually does is, is confusing. It is. It is. 
So, Greg, every stage of the automotive industry is talking about how they will use data. I often hear from industry, the value is in the data and not the product going forward. Where does AAA stand in the data collection and monetization space? You folks get a whole lot of data. We do. Um, and in fact, we service vehicles some 30 million times every year at the roadside. Uh, and we collect a tremendous amount of data around those events. We also uh, service you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles through our repair network. And uh, and so we collect, we, we do collect a tremendous amount of data, and we're just now starting the process of developing insights from that data that we can share with industry. Um, in particular, it's a uh, it, it, it's an interesting thing that that uh, that AAA has one of the the best and first looks at uh, electric vehicles, in that um, you know we're servicing all types of electric vehicles, and our members have you know about 400,000 of them in their garage, and and they're still calling us for service. You know, an interesting thing is that even if you have warranty coverage. Uh, in, in that includes roadside assistance, some 83% of our members still call us for service because they trust us to provide that in a, in a way that they're accustomed to and, and a quality level that they, that they want. And, and so with that, we have kind of a unique view that, uh, that no one else in the industry does, um, you know, a, a, across a variety of different, uh, topics. And, uh, and we're hoping to, to leverage that uh, to develop some insights that will really help the industry and individual automakers compare the, the reliability and the issues that we're seeing in one vehicle to another, be it, be it one in their own lineup or, or a competitive make. Um, and that's, a, that's an important aspect. As I've gone through this digital transformation work that we've done, it's, it's always fascinating, Greg. Everybody that has data thinks that someone else is going to pay for that data and everyone that wants that data doesn't want to pay for it. And figuring out how to monetize this stuff going forward, whether it be a material supplier going forward to a component supplier, to a vehicle manufacturer, to a consumer, to a roadside assistance, there's a lot of interesting potential there, but, but finding those models is going to be fascinating. Greg, I think we've, uh, we've come upon our time. It's always fun to talk to you. Um, Maybe next time we get together, we can talk about drag racers and dune buggies, which is your other um, passion, or maybe your your off-hours passion. But uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the Car Automotive Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brett. Really appreciate it, and we appreciate the partnership with you and Car. And I uh, hope you have a, have a great day. 